Welcome to Jyotish Conversations. I'm Ben Collins. This is a series of programs presented by Pujanet, P-U-J-A dot N-E-T, your Vedic resource on the net. Each show in this series presents an aspect of Jyotish or Hindu astrology in simple, straightforward terms, so the depth and brilliance of this knowledge can be appreciated by everyone. In this week's show, Penny Farrow presents some insights into the diamond-style chart used in the north of India. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Penny. It's nice to welcome you back. Hi, Ben. Good to be back. (laughs) So we're going to start a new series for our Jyotish Conversations podcast. And uh, so where are we going to start? Well, um, although we may be starting a new series... um, I'm going to pick up from where we left off last time, and I suppose we could think of it as new because we were discussing the fact that the rising sign signals the the uh, beginning point, the origination of the new janma, of the new jiva, of the entry of uh, the trajectory of an individual or an event, but we had decided we we're going to keep the focus on moi. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Me. Right. <laughs> because right. that carries the primary interest, right? Right. So we were, um, we went into a certain amount of detail last time on understanding how uh, the beginning is shown in the chart that we call the Janma Patrika, uh, the natal chart, the Rashi chart. Right. And we, I think did a pretty exhaustive uh, talk, although it was general. And one thing I do want to comment on, because I have gotten an email or two, uh, you know, asking for clarification on some much more particular details on how one calculates, you know, where one is in the time zone and corrections for a local mean time and all of these kinds of things that really I felt was uh, beyond what I wanted to do, I'm really just going for the big picture. The concept. Uh, Yes, the concept. And the important concept um, for that last talk and for today is this idea that the beginning of the chart uh, is represented uh, in both North and South Indian chart forms Mm -hmm. uh, by the Eastern direction. And the other big overall overarching concept that I'm going to elaborate more on today is what when we look at a chart, we aren't looking at, well, we are looking at a two-dimensional piece of computer printout. In mm-hmm. fact, that is what we're looking at. But that's not what our consciousness should be limited to, we, or our intellect should be limited to. We should be um, able to go beyond the symbols of those, the two-dimensional abstract symbols, hopefully, and recreate the sky pattern and never lose the connection that we are actually mapping the sky. That's what we're doing when we're looking at the chart, even though it doesn't look that way, but that is what we're doing. And that's where the language that gets translated as interpretation, this is, this is how the cosmic pattern communicates 
itself to us. This is its language, its relationship uh, between uh, the three um, orders of reality I discussed last time, the, the, the Babas themselves, which is, which is earth-based, uh, the movement of agrahas, which is the intermediate um, layer, and then that uh, vast canopy of the, of the fixed uh, stars, uh, which is the final contextualizer. So we, we always want to think in terms of that interrelationship of those orders of reality and how that sets up um, the cosmic play or the, the, the play that we wrote, the, the way the Prarabdha translates into the drama of a lifetime. That hopefully, makes sense. That makes good hopefully sense. Hopefully not too much drama. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with that in mind, we're going to, uh, I think, spend a little more time um, helping people out there who have the opportunity, you know, to look at how charts are represented or may have had a chart done you know, or may have had a printout of a chart and kind of look at it and say, what is this? You know, trying to give a little bit of an orientation. So, you know, you have to learn how to read a map, right, if you want to navigate anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we're going to maybe take a little um, uh, trip around uh, the map of the cosmos of a particular chart. And I've asked you to uh, post that on the on the website for this talk so that it won't be so completely abstract that uh, our listeners will have something to uh, orient towards. I will do that. And um, as we discussed earlier, I'm going to post the chart of Albert Einstein. So we have somebody who's known and um, we'll do that both in the South Indian and in the North Indian style. Wonderful. Okay. So, uh, getting back to uh, the beginning of the chart, I mentioned that the great uh, symbolism of the East. And we also talked about the fact that not everybody's born at sunrise, but yet the East is still the beginning of the uh, uh, karmic pattern for this incarnation. And whatever constellation, whatever group of stars, whatever star group is on the eastern horizon at the time of a birth, we have now called that the ascendant uh, or the Udaya Lagna more technically. And once we know that star group that's on the eastern horizon, that's the beginning of our map because we know where east is. So opposite east is west, right? And the star group that's seen opposite the east in the west, whatever stars are seen there, that constellation becomes the furthest away from the rising sign. And therefore, if we call the rising sign the first baba, then the seventh baba or house would be the opposite in the west. That gives us two of our cardinal directions. Then the south is where the midheaven is, the culmination, um, basically noon in an equal uh, sunrise uh, or light and dark day. Noon would be the, the halfway point. 
and that would be the southern direction. And then uh, north would be our last cardinal point, representing the fourth bhava. So the tenth bhava is the midheaven, and then the fourth bhava. So in the North Indian chart, that kind of cross, one, seven, four, ten axis, is more easily seen, I believe. It's represented um, consistently and clearly because the position of the first seventh, fourth, ten houses never changes. They're fixed in that chart format. So the, the so to speak, 12 o'clock position, if one's looking at the example chart, um, you'll notice in the North Indian style, there's kind of a central diamond, right? It looks like there's a diamond sitting there, almost looking three-dimensional coming out of the chart. And the very top of that diamond where you would read 12 o'clock on a clock mm-hmm. is the ascendant. It's the first house, and in many computer programs, in fact, they'll signal that by having the letters AS right in that position, or sometimes you'll have a line through it, or in some way or other, it it will mark that this is the first house, this is the rising sign. A North Indian chart, you know, really doesn't need that, because once you get familiar with how the heavens are mapped in the North Indian style, you always know that 12 o'clock is the first house. Therefore, right across from that would be the seventh bhava, seventh house. And then um, the tenth house would be on the right side of that chart, uh, the, the right um, diamond, okay? And the fourth house would be the left diamond, so to speak. And that gives us our cardinal directions, our cardinal points. So so the one of the advantages of the North Indian style of chart is that it becomes very easy to see those 1, 4, 7, 10, uh, which are called kendras. Exactly. Angles. Another right. saying they're angular houses. And you know, all civilizations or most civilizations, this is less true now because we do sort of creative, unusual things as our world has progressed. Mm-hmm. But traditionally, and, and you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure other people out there will too. Uh, but, you know, it occurs to me that instinctively um, cultures built their structures along the um, cardinal directions. You know, most towns and cities, etc., are laid out that way. There's, and this is true of um, uh, cities. This is true of you know, possibly cave dwellings. You know, more uh, primitive kinds of villages, etc. There was a kind of instinctual knowledge that there was something about these directions that were powerful. Mm-hmm. And aligning with these directions, certainly we have, you know, in many traditions, the concept of ley lines, etc. So this gets reflected also in the Jyotisha tradition, uh, where you you find many uh, references in Shastra to the fact that any uh, any graha, any planet that is in the cardinal directions, have a certain shakti. 
they make themselves felt. They, they, whatever they stand for in a person's uh, parabda, they're players. They're serious players. Right. And uh, and so once again, getting back to your point that the that the North Indian chart um, has a certain ease this way, it also highlights uh, those grahas. You see them so clearly because they're in that central diamond, right? So mm-hmm. they kind of pop out at you. And you know, one of the reasons why um, there is a sort of influence, a kind of power to, to grahas that are in these angles is because um, one of the angles is the, is the lagna itself, which, as I mentioned last time, stands for the person. And so anything in the lagna or in the seventh, which has an opportunity to interact with or look at the lagna, has a direct impact on the very fiber, the very nature of that person, their character, their MO. And the ones on the other axis, 410, have an impact on the person's primary and essential activities, which is really what the 10th house is. It's the house of karma, action. And although it's many, 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 many other things, we can think of it that way, the, and the general status of that person. And so there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, direct impact on who is this person and how do they navigate and, uh, in their world and what do they choose to do. Okay. So it's another uh, idea of why grahas and kendras tend to make their nature, what they signify, manifest powerfully. So how do we know if grahas are going to be in kendras? Well, let's finish laying out this map, and then uh, hopefully with this understanding, it won't be so mysterious to understand why planets show up in certain places in, in people's charts and the various patterns. So we've, as soon as we establish our rising sign, we're going to wind up setting a particular... Um, pattern of what constellation falls in what section of the sky. So let me try to, to um, uh, explain that a little more carefully. As, as, as soon as we know what's rising, then we know where the, what, the, what the eastern quadrant is and what Rashi, what constellation winds up appearing there. And when that happens, immediately all the Kendras become known. When we know what's in the east, then we know what has to be in the west because it's the constellation that's directly opposite. And then we know what's going to be in the south and we know what's going to be in the north. And when we have those four Rashi set, then the intermediate directions, east-southeast, north-northwest, those intermediate uh, little triangles that you see in the north northern Indian chart, they get filled in as well. So let's be more specific, and I think, um, or more illustrative, and I think it will make this easier for people. Let's take a look at this North Indian chart of Einstein that you've posted on the site, and right away people will tend to get confused because they're going to notice that in that twelve o'clock position there's a little number and I've said that this is the beginning of the chart this is the first bhava 
and we're looking at the state or condition of that piece of sky, and that's why it's called a bhava. You know, the Western word is house. The the uh, Jyotisha word for a section of the sky is bhava, because what we're assessing in a chart is the state or condition of that little piece of real estate represented by the east when we're looking at the lagna. So that is the first bhava. That's the beginning. So if it's the first bhava, why is the little number three there? Well, because Einstein was a Gemini rising. And Gemini is the third uh, Rashi in the zodiac, the third constellation. First one is Aries, second one is Taurus, and the third one is Gemini. So in the North Indian chart, all the little numbers that you see represent not the number of the section of the sky, the house number or the bhava number, but it actually, actually represents what star group became visible in those uh, directions of the sky at the time of this birth. That's a much more um, fundamental way of relating to the chart, relating to the chart in terms of not an abstraction, but realizing that as you looked at the sky that night, then those star groups were seen in those particular directions. Is this making sense? Oh, absolutely! Yes, okay. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean that, that. What what I'm 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 listening intently because I use exclusively the South Indian chart, and I find that um, much much actually um, uh, as much as your teacher Hart Defoe, uh, I think very strongly says you should be able to read both styles. Absolutely. Um, I find that so much of Jyotish is a matter of visualization. And the South Indian chart I've been using for years, and I know where, I know that in the top left corner of the South Southern style, that's always Pisces. That's right. <laughs> and there's an additional thought process that you have to go through with the North, from my perspective, say, okay, well, that's the Lagna, but see, number three, okay, that's Gemini. <laughs> right. And, right, right. And, and yet... Um, I think you're absolutely right that the, you know, in quotes, advantage of the North Indian style is that some of the relationships between the planets and, and the signs and houses becomes much easier to see. Yes. Uh, because with the South Indian style, you're always counting. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, uh, it, whether we get to talk about the South Indian, you know, to, uh, this time around or not, uh, we will get to that so we can contrast it because it is very true that there's certain um, applications in Jyotisha where the South Indian chart is way easier to use. Yes. And then yeah. there's, but there's a certain visual impact that the North Indian chart has that's very compelling. Um, Hart would uh, uh, tell us stories that if he was working um, on Jyotisha in an airplane, mm. And if he was working with um, a North Indian chart, people would always ask him what he was doing. Mm -hmm. But if he was working with a South Indian chart, they wouldn't. Now, I mean, that might be a, 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 a little artavada, a little um, hyperbole. Yeah. But the idea being that um, North Indian chart is a little more of a yantra in a way. You know, just kind oh, of I, yeah, absolutely, sure. Yeah. about it. 
Yeah. And and I believe it facilitates this process of thinking of the chart as the sky, how the sky looks. And and interestingly, uh, I enjoy um, sometimes simply rather than writing in the names of the planets or the symbols for the planets, mm-hmm. sometimes I'll just take the the North Indian chart and I'll just write X's in the places where the where the planets wind up getting mapped, which I, I will get to, I promise. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, and not always, but often I'm, I find myself drawn into the pattern that gets created. Right. And I, I start to have um, ideas and insights into the chart simply based on that. And I'm not so sure that um, that's as easily accomplished. Uh, in the other chart form, although, as I mentioned, this is not about holding one up over the other. It's they, they each have their own um, ways of um, expressing information. And for different applications of Jyotish, one or the other may be extremely useful. And everyone who does Jyotish should be very comfortable with both. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I think also it, it goes back to your point which is that a good part of Jyotish analysis is visualization. That yes. really, when you're looking at a chart, you know, what you, when, you, when you, quote, read a chart, what you're really doing, you're, you're visualizing, in a sense, visualizing the interplay between these symbols, you know, planets and stars and the position in their sky and so on. And, you know, the chart gives that structure. That's right, and it's, I, you know it's just it's a wonderful process, and 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 each each style, you know, has its has its advantages in what it helps you to visualize. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And there are even some uh, techniques of Jyotish where you have um, uh, a South Indian chart on the kind of outside, and mm-hmm. then you know the inside of South Indian chart is a big old square, and you could put a North Indian chart inside that. That's actually very clever. I haven't seen that, but that's a oh, great, yeah. so it's a great idea. There's some, and there's some applications for that. You know, especially if you're doing applications where you're looking um, at uh, Sripati or Bhava charts versus, you know, the uh, the one Bhava one uh, Rashi technique. Okay. So that's a little technical, but those out there that understand that. Um, the idea, though, is that is that sometimes you can superimpose them, and uh, and so it's very very useful to have an understanding of both. Okay, so getting back though to our mapping process, um, I want to just make sure because this is in teaching over the years, this is the point of maximum confusion that when we work with the North Indian chart, that little the little numbers. Uh, People very often confuse them for the house or bhava. That must be the third bhava because there's three there. No, that's the third sign of the zodiac. Because as you get um, familiar with the North Indian chart, you know where all the bhavas are. So you don't need any numbers to help you. That becomes internalized very quickly. But what you do need to know is what is the ascendant, what is the constellation, what is the star group that's on that eastern horizon marking the first house. And in this particular chart, the little number three stands for the third constellation, Gemini rising. Okay? 
So as soon as we know that Gemini is rising and marks the first bhava, the east, then the second bhava is going to be marked by the, the subsequent, the next constellation in order. So it's as if um, Cancer is sitting there getting ready to rise as the wheel turns. So if, if Einstein was born later, then the little number four would have been on the first uh, house. That would have been the ascendant. But as it is, with Gemini being the rising sign, Cancer sitting there right to the left in that little um, triangle that's pointing downward, um, you see the little number four, and that is the second bhava. So the bhavas are numbered counterclockwise, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, and the the sun, the um, diurnal motion is going clockwise. So that also sometimes confuses people a little bit. So uh, we could say then that Einstein's second bhava is a can is is associated with the star group of Cancer. And on the day that he was born, there was a graha, not visible because Ketu can't be seen, <laughs> but uh, the north and south nodes of the moon, Rahu Ketu, were transiting through um, Ketu through Cancer. And as we'll see later, Rahu was transiting through Capricorn. But since Ketu was mapped in Cancer that day, it winds up being in Einstein's second bhava because of the fact that Gemini was rising. This is why I mentioned in my other talk that the rising sign sets up the entire structure because the order of what constellations are seen in these different windows of the sky uh, are a consequence of what constellation was on the eastern horizon. So if we follow around, then we'll see that uh, the little number five is actually the sign of Leo that falls on the third Baba. And there was no Graha transiting through the sign of Leo on the day that he was born, so it's empty. And then we get to the fourth Baba, and you'll notice that the fourth Baba has the little number six on it. It's Virgo. It's the second one of the Kendras. So this now represents the north direction. And this would be uh, midnight. That would be the time of day. And it's it gives us our, our second um, Kendra. Then the fifth Baba has the number seven on it, which stands for Libra. Once again, no Grahas in any of these. Well, talk about the implications of that in uh, this chart or anyone's chart at some point in time, I imagine. And then the sixth bhava has the little number eight. It's a Scorpio. The, the constellation of Scorpio um, would be seen there. I say would be because this is below the horizon. You can't see it anyway. And the moon is there. On the day he was born, the moon was transiting through the sign of Scorpio which has tremendous implications and uh, interpretations uh, and events that happened in his life as a consequence of not only the fact that the moon was in Scorpio, but that the moon was in the sixth Baba while being in Scorpio. So all of these little pieces become um, words 
that we weave into sentences and paragraphs and stories. So each little building block that we're dealing with now is more like ABC. And as we go on, we start to put those pieces together into the storyline of a person's parabda. Then the uh, seventh bhava is right across from the first. We talked about that. First bhava is the east. Seventh bhava is the west. Gemini is the constellation that's rising. Then the constellation that's setting would be the constellation right opposite Gemini, which is Sagittarius. And all of these are set up that way, that the opposite constellation is 180 degrees away, the, the way this chart sets up. Once again, no graha was transiting through the seventh bhava because no graha was being mapped or charted uh, as um, in the constellation of Gemini. So if you look, I'm sorry, Sagittarius. So if you had a telescope and were looking at the sky, you wouldn't have seen any of the nine grahas in Sagittarius that night. And then, um, or that day, he actually was born daytime, which we'll get to in just a second. In the eighth bhava, you see the number 10, which is Capricorn. And there were two grahas, uh, Rahu and Mars, were transiting through Capricorn um, on the day he was born. In the ninth bhava, where you see the number 11, which is Aquarius, we find Jupiter. And so Jupiter was mapped to Aquarius. It was transiting through Aquarius on the day he was born. So we see it in the ninth house. And then the bonanza. In his tenth bhava, right at the midheaven, he had four grahas. He had Sun, Mercury, Saturn, and Venus. And at his midheaven, the sign of Pisces. If you could take all of the light out of the sky, you would see the stars of Pisces uh, at the midheaven. And all of those planets, it happened, were transiting through Pisces uh, on the day he was born. And because he was Gemini rising, Pisces winds up being on the 10th Baba. And he was born around noon. In fact, I think the birth time was about 11.30 in the morning. So as a consequence, the sun would have been um, close to the midheaven. And those planets were all hovering around the sun that day, all of them together in um, Pisces. And so all of those planets also would be at the midheaven. And, you know, right away, if you understand that this is the house of, of uh, status and uh, primary and essential activities, and uh, it's the most visible house, noon is where you see everything, right? Uh, right away, you have a sense, even by this very simple operation of mapping that we're doing, perhaps in the minds of some of you out there listening, you would get a sense of what a very public and visible figure uh, Einstein was simply by this pattern of having so many grahas at the at the at the uh, zenith, um, at the highest uh, position in the sky. Isn't that an interesting thought? How beautifully that correlates um, to a high position or a visible 
life, a life on a big canvas. Now, there's way many other factors that make Einstein Einstein. Lest any of you get too excited out there if you have three, four grahas in your tenth bomb. Okay, so you know. Um, no, but it does. It does make the uh, um, the value of the North Indian uh, chart style very apparent because boom, it's right there in your face. You can't right. miss it. You can't miss it, and in fact, you could see that almost all of the grahas, save the moon, are on the visible half because if we're saying that the that the diurnal motion is you know that the sun is is rising from east to west it's the right half of the chart uh that's the visible half above the horizon right and the left hand uh, part of the chart is below the horizon so there is you know some patterning when someone has all their grahas or almost all their grahas above the horizon and there's also meanings to why is the ninth house, why is the tenth house, why is the eleventh house, you know, why does do those bhavas carry some of the meanings they have? One of the reasons is they're above the horizon. You see, it's it's so fascinating. Everything has its, um, you know, there's there's nothing by chance. You know, it's just this beautiful intricate uh, pattern or puzzle that fits together so perfectly. Um, when we understand that, first of all, it's derived from the natural sky and then from inferences and then from the uh, writings and cognitions of the rishis, making those inferences codified into uh, eventually what becomes uh, Jyotisha Shastra and the parampara, the oral tradition that passes this information down. So in a, you know, very, well, let's finish up his chart and then I'll sort of sum up. So that's the 10th Baba. And then moving along to the 11th Baba, we see the little number one. That's because there are 12 constellations. The, the zodiac ends with Pisces. So then it, because it's a circle, it's continuous. So after Pisces uh, is the sign of Aries, which is the number one. And because so many garahas of Einstein's are concentrated in one house, that's why a lot of these other bhavas don't contain garahas. Sometimes people get very alarmed. Does that mean those houses aren't important? Well, you know, everyone has a mother. Everyone has a body. Right. <laughs> everyone has a mind. Everyone has a partner or not. You know, so every theme of every house plays in a human life. So whether there's a graha in there or not, um, there's other ways that that thematic material will come out. But on the other hand, if a house is loaded the way Einstein's 10th house is loaded, you would certainly come to a very warranted conclusion that there must be some special destiny about the meanings of that bhava that has so much activation. And so 11th Baba, uh, Aries 11th Baba, and finally we finish with the 12th Baba, which has a little number two on it, standing for the constellation of Taurus. And that is how we would um, lay out a North Indian chart. So in a in kind of a quick overall review, the four cardinal directions are very obvious in the North Indian chart. They form that central big diamond 
and that big diamond is composed of four uh, individual diamonds, each of them being the kendra or angle houses, the, the cardinal directions of the, of, the, of the sky. And then the little triangles that you see all around are the intermediate directions. Each section of the sky has a constellation. And if you had a telescope and you put your telescope on all these directions, you would see these star groups. You know, this isn't something that comes out of the air or, or that the computer creates. This is the reality of how you map the sky. And once you assign all of the star groups of these individual constellations to these sections of the sky, then, uh, you know, since we don't have the skill individually of seeing the planets and where they are and being able to calculate uh, what their degrees are, etc., we go to uh, the tools that have mapped uh, where every single uh, graha is for thousands of years uh, ago and projecting out a thousand years. These are very accurate and easy uh, for us to access these days. So we wind up being able to place a graha in a particular star group, which then automatically puts it in a particular bhava a particular section of the sky as seen from planet Earth. And when we understand that every bhava is packed with thematic material relevant to a human life, we begin to understand how the interpretation of a chart can start to flow. And there's a zillion more pieces, of course, but I think this gives us a nice basic overview. So I, I think what we'll do is um, end with that um, idea and that uh, presentation on the North Indian chart. And uh, next time we'll have a look at the South Indian chart and how they differ. That sounds great. Uh, I, it's too bad we just can't keep going and going and going. Um, it's interesting stuff, and I, I uh, uh, marvel at the uh, the brilliance of the way these these chart styles work and to think that it's thousands of years old. Well, and the accuracy. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing that, you know, all these relationships um, have been borne out by modern astronomy and the, just the, the consciousness uh, and the clarity of the minds that were able to um, fathom these kinds of relationships with, with, you know, with essentially the tool of the eye alone, um, and the, you know, the discernment—it's—it's it's mind-boggling, Ben. It really, really is. Yeah.